Hi, this is Jeff Kober, and we welcome you to this Disney Insights podcast. My friend Brian went to Disney's Typhoon Lagoon the other day with his family, only to find when he arrived, it was closed for capacity during Easter weekend. Well, what happened? By sharing a chronology of nine different water park experiences here in Orlando, we'll offer you context on what is occurring in the very competitive water park arena here in Central Florida. We'll also examine certain red flags that are on the horizon, not just for the water parks, but for attendance in general here in Orlando and elsewhere. Is Typhoon closed for capacity because so many people are attending? Or is there another story underneath all this? This is a tale I love because, frankly, I was a part of the history made in all of this. So join us as we explore the Great Orlando Water Park Race or the Orlando's Water Park Wars. This podcast, as well as others, are brought to you by Performance Journeys, celebrating its 20th year as a training and development group, bringing best in business ideas through keynotes, workshops, seminars, and benchmarking programs to organizations in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. If you're seeking to improve your customer delivery, to get more customers to come, to re-engage the morale of your workforce, or to improve the leadership of your organization, we offer not only great solutions tried and tested from our time working intimately to raise excellence in organizations like yours, big or small. At Performance Journeys, it's as much about the journey as it is about the performance. Hey, you're going to want to make sure you check out our new website, DisneyInsights.com. We have retitle. I know for <laughs> you uh, listeners on um, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, it still says Disney Work and Play. There is this really weird algorithm you got to get right in order to get the graphic change and for it to be accepted by the system and so forth. So don't don't worry about that. Know that it is now Disney Insights as shown on Spotify and other uh, 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 pod, uh, Podbean and other uh, locations. Uh, but you do want to check out Disney Insights because it has not only an outline of what we're going to talk about, but some photos and other graphics that really support this podcast. How well do you know the water parks in Central Florida? and Why do they matter as it relates to what is happening with attendance across Central Florida? To begin with, we start with a history of, well, Disney's River Country. Um, mind you, Dick Nunes had tried to build a surfing machine when Walt Disney World opened in 1971, but this is really where things get started. Because in June of 1976, during the Bicentennial, Disney's River Country, uh, the old watering hole, as it were, opened up on the shores of Bay Lake, adjacent to Fort Wilderness. It was a favorite, particularly of those staying within um, the Magic Kingdom. Well, the only hotels available in, in all of Walt Disney World were around that area at that time. And if you were staying at the campground, all the better. If you weren't, you could actually take a train. We talked about this in our Fort Wilderness. Um, oh, that was about three and a half, four months ago. We did a special on Fort Wilderness as part of 
the 50th anniversary and the opening of that um, campground during that time, there was a train that came and took you from the parking lot all the way up to Disney's River Country, where you could um, jump in the lake or take a little bit of sunshine on the beach. And there were some slides, some ropes, swing on and so forth, um, bridges to bounce on. In truth, it was um, intimate. It was beautifully themed with its rock work, um, but it was very limited in terms of its offering. And it, as Disney's other water parks emerged, it remained open only until about November of 2001. And even then, Disney actually didn't confirm the permanent closure of that water park until about 2005. Oh, marketing back then and communications. It was very crazy, kind of like it is today. But at any rate, you have to give credit to Disney's River Country because it was out the gate first. And um, But you also have to give credit to a man named George Millay. He actually founded SeaWorld and brought SeaWorld from its original location in San Diego and started another one not long after Walt Disney World opened in 1971. Um, they are going to be celebrating their 50th uh, anniversary, I think next year in um, 24. And George Millay brought that in. It came in on, so there were some challenges with its opening and so forth and the board actually canned him and so he went into another business and the business he went into was the business of water parks and the water parks he the water park he designed was the infamous wet and wild he really defined the business of water parks which included fiberglass water slides and wave pools oh and lazy rivers as well um that is what the park business is known for Hundreds of these have opened up um, around the world, and uh, and if there was a kind of slide, or the black hole was um, one of those infamous. Uh, he also had Disco H two O and Bomb Bay and the Brainwash. He had all sorts of little titles to his little themed water slides, but it was a popular popular water park and did very, very well, particularly in its early years. My business partner, uh, who is my age, in the late 70s, he would he would get up and go and um, hit the wave pool and uh, get some rays of sun and then head over to work at Disney. And a lot of kids back then, that's what they did. They Now, by the way, um, well, the property was ultimately, it was built in March of 77. So we're talking about about a year, um, a little less than a year after River Country. And then um, it lasted for decades until uh, the last day of 2016. The property was bought by Universal. And while they would go on to build a water park, they didn't build it there. They instead built what's known as Universal's Endless Summer resort from both the water park and from the parking lot across the street and uh and other water uh, wet and wilds were built across the country and then many water parks built off of that design um as well um dick nunas really wanted to make that wave pool thing happen now in the 70s 
wave pools started to emerge as as an innovation i'm f most familiar with big surf which uh happened during the 1970s in scottsdale arizona in the greater phoenix area that was a popular teenage hangout and uh as we get down to the late 80s dick nunes built led the led um the focus on building what is probably considered the granddaddy of all water parks it opened on june 1st um, in 18 or 1989 just a month after the opening of disney mgm studios and pleasure island this was a massive um addition to the entire area during that time to the entire walt disney world resort of course it was the first to offer an actual surfing style wave in a water park um at least in central florida now typhoon lagoon or wet and wild had managed to get a bobbing wave kind of going but this caught a serious wave through its what is it seven chambers of toilets essentially in the back the back wall of water mania is is seven big toilets that flush in in a uh, particular pattern giving you uh the uh, the wave effect and it has been uh fantastically received ever since you can just hit you can hear the ahs from people in the pool as they hear as they hear that wave cut and they and they anticipate um body surfing those waves I also have to give, um, in addition to a number of water slides and a fantastic uh, Lazy River style um, um, experience, I have to also remind us of Shark's Reef Snorkel spit Swim. This was a very clever attraction which allowed people to get life vests on, snorkeling equipment, some fins, and then you got to swim across this little lagoon and see all sorts of live fish and even some sand sharks that were toward the bottom of it. In the middle was the hull turned upside down of the ship. The ship was turned upside down. You saw the keel, the hull of the ship. You could go inside of it if you didn't want to go swimming in the, and uh, which was a much colder lagoon. And, uh, and you could look out the portholes at the swimmers um, going by in this. This was very popular operationally. It was very expensive. And while it could have been supported by the animals team very well, it, um, they ultimately made an operational decision. I think it was one of the worst operational decisions ever made. And I think it, it cost Disney something very unique and very something very special in the marketplace it was replaced at about the same time with the new family raffslade which was needed misadventure falls which has a society of explorers and adventurers theme to it the, the thing about typhoon lagoon which was amazing is that um it just it is stunningly beautiful it is your vacation from your vacation i've told many people this it has a tropical feel, trop a feel, a sense that you've kind of drifted away to someplace else. Um, and it's just a fantastic water park. Continues to be so even today. But um, now, at the same time, there was a, a man by the name of Gary Larson. And he 
his family owned a number of uh, investments, real estate, so forth, in the Kissimmee area. And his brother chose to use some monies and build what was known as Larson Lodge. And Gary decided to build a water park. And he gathered what I believe was $25 million in loans to build Watermania. And just as he was getting ready to close on those loans, well, lo and behold, Disney came forward and announced that they were building Typhoon Lagoon. And Gary did all he could to barely get half the money to open. The biggest mistake he perhaps made is much of the infrastructure he built in the in initial phase of the water park was built away from US-192. And it was very difficult for for families coming by on the many hotels. Remember, 192 would pick you up from the turnpike and anybody from South Florida would be coming down 192 to get to Disney. And there are lots of hotels, and but they couldn't see anything there, even though there was signage out there. So Gary was, um, was pretty smart looking at new technologies. He found um, a certain surf flow a technology that allowed him to build a a sort of permanent um, surf machine, for lack of a better term, that constantly gave out a huge propulsion of of wave, and he connected this to a lazy river, and he built all of this in the front of the park, and he hired. Actually, the man who built the concrete infrastructure, particularly with the flumes and everything, he hired that man to come and build all of this infrastructure for Watermania. And as he began, mind you, he'd gone about five years struggling to try to make this water park, but he came up with enough money to do this and got a 10-year contract to um, to our 10-year agreement that no other uh, water parks or enterprises could have this sort of, um, it was a technology from Schlitterbaum, which is um, a water park uh, in Texas that also is involved with water park technology. And he got the money to build this, what well, was called the Wipeout. And it was this permanent surfing wave. And it was cool. And at the same time he started building that, Disney announced um, Blizzard Beach. And uh, again, trying to give him uh, a run for his money. Um, I actually walked Blizzard Beach in my years operating. I actually had a chance to walk it during the construction phase. It opened its doors in 1995 and it held attendance records very comparable to Disney's Typhoon Lagoon. Of course, the crazy thing about Blizzard Beach is Michael Eisner on a very whim looked at three different models and instantly fell in love with the Blizzard Beach and went with it, barely even looked at the other two models, and just fell in love with the very strange concept that there would be this snowstorm that came along, that Orlando would then build a ski lodge around it, it would then melt, and it would become a water park. But my goodness, it is a very clever theme and is so unique. Also offers a unique miniature golf course that is adjacent to the park. I think that's important to know, especially if you get to the water parks and you realize um, 
they are closed for occupancy, you might want to consider going to the miniature golf course next door. At any rate, Disney's Blizzard Beach opened and now we had five water parks in the central Florida area. We had River Country, we had Wet n' Wild, we had Typhoon Lagoon, we had Water Mania, we had Blizzard Beach. Disney was in the, um, the 90s where they were very much focused on competition in the workplace. I would stand outside, I think it was 10 and 2 o'clock, maybe 11 and 2 o'clock. It may have been 11 a.m. and 2 o'clock. You could stand outside in the parking lot and watch a small commuter plane from the Stolport at Walt Disney World head over your parking lot and take count of how many people were there. Then it would head over to SeaWorld and take the count over there. And then it would head over to Wet n Wild, take the count over there. And then it would come over and take the count at Universal and then come back to the Stolport. Every day, pretty much every day, they took the count of the parking lot to see how they were doing in comparison to the competition. Um, there was a lot of competition in terms of these water parks. And that didn't start ebbing away until about November of 2001 when um, when River Country was closed. That's a longer story I'm not going to get into today. But at the same time, a couple other things were happening. SeaWorld, which had long had its traditional park with Shamu and Dolphin Stadium and all those other things, decided it was going to build what would be known as SeaWorld Discovery Cove. This is an intimate park. And while you can do some swimming and some rafting, its intent is to really have a resort-like experience among animals and marine life with the specialty of actually having the opportunity to touch and pet, take a photo in the water with a dolphin. And that became part of SeaWorld's, what would ultimately become SeaWorld's trio of parks because it would then add a third park in July of 2005 and that would become Aquatica. And that would be part of SeaWorld's operation and uh, it um, had about 17... Um, uh, it had about 17 slides and so forth to, um, not, not one, but two, um, wave pools. This is about the same time water mania is, is closing its doors. So things again, competition is quite big on the horizon. It is then there's a, there's, there's this period where things kind of go a little soft during the recession. But in 2017, Universal opens Volcano Bay. And this is the first water park ever Universal ever opens. It has about 17 attractions, including um, two lazy or two rivers and a massive wave pool and a volcano in the middle of it, which is impressive, especially at night when you drive by um, I-4. It is, and its whole Polynesian kind of unique theming, very colorful, um, beautiful park. It is a stunning park. It added a sort of watch-like um, device that would kind of give you a sort of fast pass so you didn't have to wait in line for some of the more popular water slides. It had mixed results. 
but it was followed by another water park, much smaller, much smaller, called Margaritaville's Island H2O. Now, there is a whole nother story coming back on this actual piece of land because it actually dates, that land dates back to a time where something called Splendid China opened in West 192. And Splendid China would be like the ultimate um, themed miniature golf course featuring architectural icons of China, but without any golf course. You just walked around these displays of all these buildings, the Great Wall and so forth. It was a unique but terribly thought out uh, why anybody would want to spend much. It didn't last long. And it kind of went kind of dull in that area. But um, Margaritaville opened up an entire resort-like community and as part of it created what was called Island H2O. It's about 14 acres. And um, it has had its own mixed results um, with its 14 attractions. It opened in January of 2017. So as of today's date, <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six um, water parks are in competition with each other. Not to include, by the way, um, hotels and resorts, which decided that they were going to do their own water park. There was a Nickelodeon um, hotel uh, off of... Um, part of I drive and it had a stunning compact display of water slides and everything all themed to Nickelodeon. Um, meanwhile, across the way, Marriott's World Resort has a, a large um, area dedicated to pools and and uh, slides and, and all sorts of attractions. So, so water parks are a lot of competition. Now I'm going to I'm going to note, and these numbers are available from Tia in, uh, in DisneyInsights.com, but I want to give you a sense of how attendance has been um, in some of these American, some of these Orlando-based water parks. By the way, Orlando is really one of the only places in the country, it's really the only place in the country, and there aren't a whole lot around the world which stay open year around year round um although one might argue with even that but by and large the intent is they are built to stay open year round and in that spirit if you visited uh typhoon lagoon in 2017 you would have known you would have seen that there was two million uh, 163,000 people who came to that water park. Outside of a water park in China, it is definitely the leader in attendance in North America for water parks. In 2018, it went to 2,271,000. These are huge numbers. Blizzard Beach isn't far behind that. It was a little short of 2 million in 2017. In 2018, it was north of 2 million. And so it too, not quite as popular as Typhoon, but definitely big players. Um, when you get to Volcano Bay, 
And I believe that I just said it, that Volcano Bay opened in 2017. That was half the year. In only half the year, the first year of running, it managed to pull in one million, well, one and a half million people into the park. That's a phenomenal number, considering you've been closed for most of it. In the following year, in 2018, it went to 1,725,000 people. And Aquatica, we're not going to really focus on Margaritaville or, or SeaWorld um, sea Discovery Cove because these are minor size water parks compared to these, these four biggies. But uh, honestly, Aquatica has done pretty good too. A million four hundred thirty-four thousand in two thousand seventeen. A million five hundred fifty-six thousand in two thousand eighteen. So from a million five to two million and nearly three hundred thousand, these four water parks have had this kind of attendance. Then we came to something called a pandemic, and nothing like a pandemic to close your close your parks. And in fact. Not only were the parks closed, the water parks were closed substantially longer than um, it was well over a year for Blizzard Beach, and it was two years for Typhoon Lagoon. So much that there was, um, well, let's, or, um, well, let's talk about this. Actually, I'm sorry. In 2019, um, right before uh, we got settled in with the pandemic, um, <clears throat> Typhoon Lagoon had seen 2,248,000. So its numbers had continued growing. And Blizzard Beach had had 1,983,000. Volcano Bay at 1,811,000. And Aquatica at 1,000,005 plus. Then the water parks went dead. Blizzard Beach opened toward the end of 20 and did 316,000. Volcano Bay had opened a little earlier than Blizzard Beach, as I recall. And so did Aquatica. Um, remember, Universal and SeaWorld went off there um, having to wear um, uh, face masks. They went off of that a little sooner than Disney did, and each of them did north of half a million in 2020. So what does it look like in 2021? Well, Blizzard Beach did a million too. Universal's Volcano Bay did a million six. And remember back in 18, it had done a, um, a million seven to five. So it was nearing what it had done previously whereas blizzard beach was still south that year and then um uh, aquatica did a million and uh, one and a half um thousand one hundred and forty seven thousand um, not a bad comeback for any of those parks but here's the thing typhoon lagoon didn't have any numbers in 21 or 20 and why because it stayed closed that entire time it didn't reopen in 22 now we don't have the 22 numbers yet 
And mind you, what we don't, what what I think a lot of people don't realize is that during the summer months, from March until the, at least the end of September, sometimes a little later, both Blizzard Beach and Typhoon Lagoon ran throughout that entire period. Now, only one park is ever open. And so right now, Blizzard Beach closed about a couple of weeks ago and Typhoon Lagoon reopened, but it's only one park open at a time. So these numbers are pretty, um, they are of concern. They are dramatically lower than what has been happening before. And it's a, it's a sign of concern. Are water parks the sign of the times? Are they a bellwether for what's going on? Well, here's some indicators to consider as one looks at the water parks and how they're faring. Again, Disney used to close because of capacity. It would close its parks all the time, especially during spring break and Easter. Now we saw Brian, it closed to capacity on Good Friday of Easter. But hey, he's to close at capacity at all the time. In fact, I think he said it closed to capacity around one o'clock. It used to close to capacity more toward 11 or 11.30 in the morning. And that was both parks. In fact, there was a time, even River Country, when it was open, all three parks closed to capacity. I know that because the spillover came over to Watermania. Now it's barely closing to capacity all the time. It happened to Brian last week, but it's not happening very often. Easter season was one of the highest peak times of the year. And while it did close to capacity, it was only one park that closed to capacity. Let me give you another example. I didn't spend a lot of time in the parks last week, but I did do a date night with my wife on Saturday evening. We got to the park around 8 p.m., 7.38 p.m., and we did an immediate walk-on to, um, by the way, apologize, my kids uh, acting out in the background, but we did an immediate walk-on to Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. I mean, no queue up until the point where the two lines merged. And after that, it was only another five minutes before we were in the pre-show theater. That is a very, and, and it was... Um, I want to say that it was somewhere probably around 35 minutes for Rise of the Resistance during that time in that park. Even more interesting is that Disney chose, which it would always do this time of year, during Easter, during spring break, to offer not one but two phantasmic shows. And by the way, before the pandemic, it also offered not only the animation and Disney feature film showcase on the Chinese theater, it did Star Wars uh, fireworks off of that theater. We don't even have Star Wars fireworks as an option now. What we do have, what they did offer is two shows at Fantasmic. We went to the second one at 10 o'clock. That one was barely over 55% in capacity. Maybe coming towards 60, but not beyond it. There were there were easily several sections completely closed and many very sparse in terms of its occupancy. Now, 
we went on Saturday of Easter weekend. That's a sign because I'm telling you, Easter, Easter weekend used to even be more in attendance than Thanksgiving weekend. And certainly um, more than in attendance than spring break. And, and, and here we are, if this isn't, any rate, you can see there's a concern here. There are costs associated with travel. If you think about this, um, one of the things that filled the water parks and frankly filled the theme parks as well was youth. You, They came down here to do sports competitions. They came down here to do band festivals. They came down here to do spring break. And there are lots of youth. Some of that has gone elsewhere. I think I noticed a cheerleading competition. Um, it was like in... Um, oh, where did I see that? I, it was like north of Orlando. Maybe St. Augustine or maybe... Um, um, I'm not sure, but at any rate, I noticed it had gone outside of the Orlando area. I also, if, um, I also was talking to, um, uh, David, uh, who is of course with Out the Door Travel, who knows all things travel-wise. He said he priced motor coaches for, for a band. They needed two motor coaches to carry the band, its uniforms, and the equipment, or the instruments, down here to Orlando to play and then come back. The cost for those two motor coaches would have ran them $40,000. $40,000 for two coaches uh, round trip. I kind of said to David, well, maybe they should have just taken a plane, but you can't, they, they, you can't get all the instruments and all of that on the plane without paying enormous charges and so forth. And so these kinds of things are pulling down on the attendance. People going elsewhere, people choosing not to travel all the way down here. Um, recent um, specials for annual pass holders and others have been listed just in the last week or two for the next number of months to come. Um, I understand the summer uh, rates for 2024 have not been listed, which are often listed by this time. And probably because they're holding out for more people to still try to book summer of 2023. And then, of course, last week there was an announcement at the purchase of annual passes at both Walt Disney World and um, or at Walt Disney World was beginning again soon. So this, too, is um, suggesting that um, they're concerned about the overall attendance. Their ideal for attendance would be for them to be able to get folks to come here from out of town, from out of state, from out of country. And I think some of those numbers are softening. They certainly are very soft for the water parks. And I can't help but wonder, are they soft for the theme parks as well? Now, I should make one exception. Disney Cruise Line's really doing strong in its bookings. However, the cruise line up until just recently, uh, until, what was it, eight months ago, six months ago, required you to be vaccinated to get on there. So a lot of people have put off cruise line traveling. It's still catching up to a lot of people who, who didn't go during those several years of the pandemic. And in fact, uh, I was told by that Adventures by Disney still requires you to be vaccinated to go on 
uh, some if not all their programs. That may change soon, but you can see that the pandemic has had a huge, um, uh, has created huge challenges for this industry. And even though a lot of people wanted to come to Disney during the 50th anniversary and so forth, it may be that attendance is softening. Well, the good news is we were gonna we're gonna keep you informed as all of this transpires, whether we're at Typhoon Lagoon or Disney's Hollywood Studios or in the heart of the Magic Kingdom. We want you to join with us. Make sure you are subscribed to DisneyInsights.com, both in terms of the podcast, in terms of our website, and also in terms of our YouTube channel, also titled Disney Insights. Come join us. Make sure you sign up. Also, while you're at any of those, check out our Patreon group, which offers unique, uh, which not only goes to support this podcast, but offers some unique interactive discoveries for you to see the parks in a whole new light and to explore them. We just talked about uh, Pirates of the Caribbean in Adventureland at Disneyland Paris. It's just the previous podcast. We got even more stuff on that coming out in our Patreon group. So make sure you check that out and subscribe. To take a look at see what that's all about. In the end, make sure that no matter where you are, whatever you do, always follow the compass of your heart. We hope you have a great day. We'll see you real soon. Thank you.